the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Welcome back, everybody, to Arthropod, your entomology-themed podcast. Michael and Jonathan are super busy, so you get stuck with me as the host. I'm Jody Green. I am an extension educator and entomologist with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And today, I have a special guest for you who is far away on another continent in another time zone. Special guest, can you please introduce yourself and tell us where you are and what time it is over there? Okay, well, hello. My name is Kevin O'Shea, and I am a Canadian uh, primary school educator, an international school educator, and I am currently based in Shenzhen, China. Um, and that's a place where most people don't know where that is. Um, most people know Shanghai and, and Beijing. Shenzhen is a very large city of about 15 million people that is directly across the water from Hong Kong. So I can actually see Hong Kong territory from my balcony. So we're a hop, skip and a jump from Hong Kong, one bridge away, essentially. I'm here and it is, I think it's like seven o'clock-ish in the morning for you. And it it's uh, af- it's after 8 p.m. Uh, the same day for me. So I'm I'm in the future. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening to let me interview you. I'm in the office right now. It's it's pretty dark. You might see people moving around behind me in a, in a little bit yeah. when, when my coworkers get here. So you have a fascinating life, I just want to tell you. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Do you have any idea why I asked you to be on Arthropod? Well, um, <laughs> this is really cool. It's it's a bit of a fanboy thing for me because I've been listening to the Arthropod for several years now. I've been, I think, I started listening to you guys in. It would have been in 2020. Um, I, it would have been, I think, uh, February or March of 2020. I found you guys, your podcast. I how was, did you find us? How did I find you? Well, yeah. we're gonna delve deeper into the world of my <laughs> bug, my bug nerddom. But um, essentially, what happened was I've been based in in China for the last six years. As an international school educator, I was in Beijing and I had just moved to Shenzhen when this whole COVID thing happened. And then what happened was it was very early on before even cases were being reported in America or Canada. And I was here in China. There were whisperings of stuff that was really bad, something weird going on up in Wuhan, China. Mm -hmm. And I was down here in Shenzhen. That would have been in January. And uh, no one knew what was going on, but there was something scary afoot. And um, beginning of February... Um, a lot of our coworkers were rec- it was recommended by our administration that if you f- don't feel comfortable here in China, go home, go somewhere, go go back to your countries, and uh, uh, we'll 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 sort out whatever happens when uh-huh. when this blows over in a few weeks from now, or so we thought. Yeah. Um, so uh, my wife is from uh, Japan, Osaka, Japan. So we decided to hop onto an airplane, my wife and I and my two kids, and we flew to Osaka and we thought we'd be there for you know a few weeks, a month, and then mm-hmm. head back here to continue our jobs. We got stuck there, borders closed in Japan and in China. And I was there until November of 2020. And I, I, I remember basically I had a lot of time on my hands. I would teach literally online like about an hour or two a day. And the rest of the time, I just I'd have the days, you know, and I would I would go for long walks and I was into bugs. I've been into bugs for a long time, insects. And I was just literally searching around on, I think, like Apple Podcasts for anything to do with insects podcasts. And I subscribed to several and I listened to some and I didn't really care for them or wasn't very interested. But I got caught by the arthropod and uh, I fell down the the rabbit hole <laughs> and I was like binging back episodes for weeks. I'd go for long walks and I, and I was listening to you guys. That's how you got on my radar. And fast forward to last year, I started a podcast. I've been a podcaster for years. I've had a lot of different kinds of podcasts. A lot of them have been kind of travel and culture storytelling related, but Mm -hmm. I decided to do a podcast about my passion in education, which is environmental education. So I started one called the Nature Talks podcast, and I had several guests on over the the course of the podcast, and I invited you to come on the podcast. And uh, we had a great episode together of uh, the Nature Talks podcast, and you talked all about what you do as an entomologist, an extension entomologist, and your passion and connection with the outdoors and nature and how so and now we're I guess we're just reversing roles 
And um, we are. So well, thank you, you so much. Me. <laughs> thank yeah. you so much for listening to our podcast. And thank you so much for being an advocate for nature and science. And I think that's another thing. I mean, besides from being Canadian, one of the uh, other things we have in common is that we do teach like we're educators and we really yeah. promote nature and, and things like that. But mm-hmm. I want you to talk about your like your experience mm-hmm. mostly about uh, how you came to use insects in your teaching and some of the different perspectives you've experienced in Asia and other places in res- like with respect to yeah. to bugs or insects and conservation because you've got that different twist on it that you've traveled and you've seen mm-hmm. attitudes towards insects and what you're teaching. I mean, we've always got to, I guess, cater to our audience. So it's really interesting for me to find out like what that knowledge is that your audience already has and what you've been trying mm-hmm. to do to promote nature and insects and sustainability and all that stuff that I know that you are really interested in. Uh, I've listened to to the Nature Talks podcast and some of the things that you've done, which are really great. And you sometimes describe yourself as like a gardener, bug nerd, um, mm. a lot of things that I'm like, yeah, yeah, like I can relate to that. And so I just want a lot of your your insight and perspectives okay. on these things. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I'm a primary educator. So my specialty is I'm I'm a teacher in the province of Ontario, Canada, and OCT. So my specialty is is K to six, kindergarten grade six. I've spent the majority of my career. I've been a teacher for about 20 years now, teaching the younger side. So it's mostly been grade two down. So kindergarten, grade one, grade two. And I've kind of bounced around before those between those year levels. But I've also done a lot of work within primary schools with older students too. I grew up in in rural Nova Scotia. And I guess I was always surrounded by nature. I grew up in like a town of like 800 people. And it was all around me all the time. And that's how we grew up, you know, and you know, the, the generation where, you know, no iPads, no internet. So we did it old school. But I suppose, you know, sometimes we don't appreciate what we have. And I moved to Asia when I was in my mid-20s and I moved into Seoul, Korea as a teacher. And to go from, I think I was living in Moncton, New Brunswick at the time, a city of like probably 80,000 people and then hopping into a a city of like, you know, 20 million. It's uh, quite a jarring change. But at that point, I still didn't have that connection. Like really, I wasn't really into the nature thing, so to speak. Um, I moved to Japan in 2008, and I had a job uh, teaching kindergarten at an international school. And that's when it all happened, the kind of love affair with with insects and bugs. And what really got me there, and I guess I'll kind of broach a whole a bunch of things here, but it was really a Japanese cultural thing. In, in Japan, nature is really revered, and bugs are revered, to be honest. It, it, it's such a, an important part of youth, the youth in Japan, or being a kid when the summer comes to go outside and collect bugs. You know, it, it starts with people really know that summer is here when they hear the sounds of the cicadas. And the cicadas mm-hmm. are called semi in Japanese, and they're just everywhere. And Japanese people refer to it as the song of the summer. And that's, that's what, they what refer I to. call it. Cicadas sing. Right? I so love it's, it's, that sound. Yeah, and you know what? I hated it my first couple of years in Japan. I hated it. It was so loud. It was insane. I like I couldn't sleep in the morning. They would wake me up at like eight o'clock in the morning on a weekend because they were so loud. And what happens to me is what happened to a lot of expats who live in Japan for a, after a few years. I loved it. But um, but what you'd see in the summertime is you just see little kids running around on the weekends with big bug nets and 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 like these little plastic cages filled with cicadas and they'll be running around they have them around their necks with like 20 or 30 screaming cicadas in them and the older kids teach the younger kids how to catch the bugs and how to handle them and it was it was like my first summer there and like like literally kids showed me how to grab a cicada off a tree with my fingers and i was scared to death of it cuz it, it's a huge <laughs> bug and when yes. you don't know about it you know, that's a big bug. It's, and it's allowed, right? It's, I think, the loudest insect in the yeah. world. Yeah, I mean, and they scream at you. We joke all the time because oh, yeah. I get clients that are like, uh, I don't like the cicadas. How do I stop that? And I'm like, you can't. You can't, you can't. stop it. You need to go yeah. inside and put your earplugs in. Exactly. Don't get yeah. mad at me for it. Move, move to move move to northern Canada. So would they would they keep them <laughs> as would they keep them as pets? They tend to keep them and just release them. They'll keep them maybe for a few hours and maybe run home and show mom and dad. And then they release them and they'll put them back on trees and stuff. And 
it's not just that. It's like grasshoppers and um, lots of other insects. You know, the kids all love to to collect. Uh, they call them dango mushi in Japanese, uh, which are like dango is like a round type of uh, sticky rice food. The the potato bugs or pill bugs or um, roly polies. Uh... We grew up we calling call them, them potato bugs. Right. That's a Canadian. Okay. That must be Canadian. Must be Canadian. It must yeah. be. Okay. And, or, I've, I know like Australians call them slaters um, oh. and, and wood lice. I guess lots of other yes. names, right? Yeah. I didn't know what a roly poly was when I came here. I was like, what are we talking about? I saw them in storybooks. I saw them in storybooks oh. as I read, as I read as a, as a teacher, American published storybooks. But yeah, we call them potato bugs. Okay. Um, that that, yeah, that yeah, confirms so, and validates a lot of yeah, things. That's go. wrong. At least <laughs> So it was really, it was just amazing. Like, uh, and yeah. the, the kids actually taught me a lot about Did the parents, like, like when they go to show their parents, what are their parents? The parents sentence? love it in Japan because the parents went through the same thing, right? It's yeah. the parents. So even like when you look at like a lot of their textbooks in school, there's a lot of references to insects. There's a lot of TV shows. I did a TEDx talk a couple of years back about, it was called I Love Bugs. And it was about mm-hmm. how I use bugs in education. And one of the things I talked about is like, you can turn on like primetime Japanese TV. And there's like this one famous comedian who loves bugs. So he has a TV show on where he just like dresses like a mantis and stuff. And he does like, he'll bring on other celebrities and do like quizzes with them about bug facts. And he brings out like celebrities and like famous singers and actresses to like catch bugs and run around in the woods and stuff. <laughs> and it's just, it, so, I mean, that's really neat. So it is. Um, what what was very cool about kind of cutting my teeth in the world of becoming a bug fan there was that I don't think definitely not like in Canada. I mean, so many people appreciated the insects. No, not don't get me wrong. I mean, like people still hate cockroaches and stuff. Mm-hmm. But like you'd see, um, I can remember like my daughter's kindergarten when she was like three or four years old being in kindergarten, me visiting. And there was a, a crowd of kids. I was picking her up from school one day and there's a crowd of kids gathered around. They're all looking up at the wall. And I look up and I was like, ah, there's like a giant huntsman spider. That was like the size of a dinner plate just up on the wall. And the school janitor was with them and they're all looking at it. And he was like explaining to them what it is. And uh, I was like, well, what are you going to do with this? And they're like, we don't, we don't do anything. We just, we leave it. Oh. Because everyone knows that if you have huntsman spiders, you don't have cockroaches. Nice. And so it's, and that's what they always say that like the huntsman spider is like the friend of the farmer. The farmers just leave them alone in the farmhouses because they eat all the, the bugs that they don't want. So, you know, you you learn all this kind of neat knowledge and stuff. And um, what I learned about bugs is quite positive. But I, I dove into it and I started buying like all these field guides, Japanese field guides to bugs, like series after series of books, little pocket field guides. And I, I started going out on the weekends looking for bugs and going out with my students looking for bugs. And I was fortunate enough at a kindergarten I worked at to spend two or three hours a day outdoors in a big giant park. So, uh, yeah, I just, I, that's where I really got into it and just started kind of becoming Mm self-taught. Um, I would say I'm an armchair entomologist, so I became very self-taught and, um, YouTube is great too. You know, Mm -hmm. I started just watching anything I could consume, anything I could about bugs on YouTube. That was my Japan experience. And then I moved to China, um, where it was very different experience. Um, (laughs) Kevin, can I, I'm going to interrupt to ask, Go ahead, did you, yeah. did you always want to be an international school teacher? Like, did you know that you were going to travel? Did you start studying different languages? Did you know how to speak any of all these languages? And were you aware of all the cultural differences that were going to come up? Or oh, did you no, just take not, it as it came? <laughs> I'll say none to all of those things. That, that's a no, 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 no. Um, I was a, um, I was a IT developer before I became a teacher. I worked uh, in game development. I was actually a 3D artist 3d modeler um doing like pc games making pc games in the late 90s into the early 2000s i wanted to travel and at the time in the early 2000s um it seemed that teaching english abroad was a great way to travel you could get a job teaching english if you're a canadian with a a university degree i you could get a job teaching english in korea they pay for your air flight Mm -hmm. to fly over there they give you a free apartment all this stuff and you know you just teach english to kids and that's what i did um, I did that a couple of years and I said to myself, I really like this teaching thing, but I have a Bachelor of Arts degree. I'm not a certified teacher, but I want to be one. So at that point, pre like when online learning wasn't really that much of a thing at all, I inquired to a bunch of schools in Canada about getting my Bachelor of Education, getting my teaching mm-hmm. license. And I contacted basically every school in Ontario and they all said, no, you can't do any of this online. You've got to come here and do it. So um, I came back to Canada and I went back to, to university mm. and uh, kind of a bit of a late, a, a late student in my, my late 20s. And I got my Bachelor of Education and became a certified Canadian teacher. And that's what you need in order to become an international school teacher. You've got to be a teacher 
in your own country and you have to have a recognized license. Then once I got, I'd met my Japanese wife in between that. And uh, then I decided I wanted to go to Japan. So I was able to get a job at a very small school because I didn't have experience. Um, and uh, yeah, then I ended up in Japan. I did not speak Korean when I went to Korea. Um, I learned Korean um, because where I lived in in the early 2000s, there weren't many foreigners around. There wasn't much English. And uh, it was kind of do or die. It was very survival. You had to learn something or you're going to be very lonely and not get life things done in life. When I moved to Japan, I, I learned just because I was there for so long. Mm-hmm. Some, I won't say I was ever fluent, but I may have been okay at one point in speaking. <laughs> but yeah, and the cultural thing, you just learn you don't learn about a culture quickly. You know, you don't learn about a culture from traveling. You don't, it right. takes years of being there, of having extended family. And my, like, my family who are Japanese, my mm-hmm. wife visiting her family, you know, she has some aunt and uncle who are farmers spending weekends on the farm or holidays with them, just listening, learning, absorbing. That's kind of how you learn the culture over time. I was in Japan for about 10 years. So, I guess that's how I know what I know <laughs> about that. Um, but then we came to China um, and we came to China for just for, uh, I, I guess it'll be professional reasons. Just mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of really big, big schools in China that it's a great move up in your career. So I came, I moved to Beijing and um, yeah, it was a tougher sell the insect thing there. There's a, a real lack of nature um, in a city like that. And in Beijing and a lot of Chinese cities, are, nature is very artificial. So you will have a giant park, but all the trees are planted in grids and all the grass is planted in grids and all the bushes are planted in grids and nothing is native. Everything is alien. You go into iNaturalist and every photo you take, they'll be like, that flower is from Mexico and that plant's from Australia and that tree's from Peru and that thing. And and you kind of start to wonder, well, what is from here? And I realized that I was uh, also teaching a very different demographic, I guess, uh, financial demographic. I was teaching super, super, super rich, rich, very affluent children who they had no exposure to nature or the outdoors, nor did their parents. So that was a harder sell. Um, Number one, it was harder for me to find specimens and critters to show the kids. And when I could, they were all scared to death of them. So it was a kind of a, a slow nurturing thing I would try to do with my classes. Um, Wow. So Little by little, I would I would try to introduce like kids I taught insects. I would do things like in, like I bought a colony of ants, like a Japanese carpenter ants with queen, and tried mm-hmm. to raise them in the classroom. But so, and I've been in China now for six years, and uh, where I'm at right now in Shenzhen, it's a little bit better. But at the same time, it's still it's still tough. It's not easy here. There is definitely it's interesting, different country, very different perspective on nature and insects, and the kids I teach here. I would say have a lot less exposure to even going into a park, to playing outside. A lot of them, yeah, don't have that. So it it is tough to make those connections. I've heard you mention on, on Nature Talks that some feel that nature is dirty. Ah, yes. Right? Um, first yeah. of all, dirty doesn't mean it's bad. I mean, that's mm-hmm. part of being a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, I, I I had this conversation with my sister-in-law the other day. When I was in Indiana, we went, we took uh, the kids to a state park and they got pretty wet and dirty. And the Mm -hmm. only person that was worried about it was her. Like they loved it. They had a great time. And and we talked and she was like, yeah, you know, you're right. Where do you think those, those negative or indifferent attitudes come from? Well, I mean, there's a lot of irrational stuff that comes from, but I mean, it comes from parents and their parents, I suppose. But I mean, it's like, I always think of this, like there was like, um, there was like this Neil deGrasse Tyson video where he talks about like this great image of watching like he's in a park watching and there's like this big giant he refers to it as like a juicy wet puddle and there's like a little kid walking along who's just staring at it and she's wearing rubber boots and she's looking at it and she's looking at it and she's holding her mom's hand and just as she gets to the puddle the mom pulls her hand and pulls her away from it and this like amazing moment is gone you know this amazing moment of curiosity of of learning about fluid dynamics and forces and all of this like amazing things. But, um, you know, there's, there's like that, that whole kind of dirty. And I, I, I made that quote before that was, I still remember the name of the child. It was the second grade child I taught in Beijing. Um, I was running a after school club called the nature club. And she said to me, this girl said, with great conviction. She said, Mr. O'Shea, my mother says nature is 
dirty. When she crinkled up her face and I said, well, you know what? We need your mother to join this club too. <laughs> That's what I told her. That was my reply. You ask her and she can come. Okay. I'll be happy to have her. Um, <laughs> she didn't though. But, um, you know, there's a lot of kids who get in trouble when they're dirty. You know, I've, I've, I've over the years, I've taught kids here who've, when they get a bit of mud on their pants, they start crying because they know that mom's going to be angry at them and they're scared to go home because they don't want to be yelled at. There's that kind of like the kids have a disconnect because their parents have a disconnect. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if, the, you know, a lot of a lot of the children I teach don't have the opportunity to go to a, a park and play on a Saturday or Sunday because their parents have no interest in going to a park on a Saturday or Sunday when they can go to a beautiful air conditioned mall or a, a nice yeah. cafe. One of the things I did a few years ago here pre-COVID and I was starting to have a little bit of success with this is I, I, I know this, that the kids are the easy sell. The parents are the harder sell. And if I want kids to have exposure to the outdoors or nature when they're not with me, you need to convince the parents that it's a cool thing or it's an interesting thing. So what I started doing was organizing these nature walks on weekends or after school, but it was for parents. Uh, you know, Parents I, I without aver- kids or parents and kids? I would often, I would often try to ask parents without the kids, to be honest, because what happens when the kids are there, the kids come up and the kids have a million questions and then the parents just kind of step back and walk away and tune out and they pull out their phones and start looking at their phones. And then it defeats the purpose of what mm-hmm. I wanted. So I, I want the parents. And what I did is I had like around our campus, we have a lot of nature on our campus and I would, a lot of interesting things, you know, we've got some colonies of fruit bats, lesser short nose fruit bats. A lot of neat, but we got some uh, lychee trees or lychee trees with lots of cool stink bugs on them. We've got some cool, like a lot of nests, bird nests around and stuff. So I would, I would, you know, kind of pre, I'd prepare like a neat little kind of course to take them around a place to show them a tour. And I'd bring them around and show them all these interesting things. And I'd be like, you know, all these things are here. They're all over the place. If you just look and I teach the parents the whole idea of stopping to be quiet and look. And um, the parents are always at the end of these walking tours, like super excited and and stoked and pumped mm-hmm. and really happy. And I'd see like that little bit of light, like the kids see in the parents. And it was awesome. And then, and then COVID happened and all that stuff. Mm. And uh, that's something I'm hoping to do again in the future. I got a lot out of that. So I think that cultural divide might not necessarily be like a China thing. I think that may be more of, uh, you know, like in Japan, maybe they have more of a connection because it's in their culture. It's on TV. Mm -hmm. Your grandparents taught you about the bugs and the nature and your parents did. And there's, they had that kind of connection. Whereas in, I, I don't think we have that in Canada, to be honest. We definitely need some more of that here. Yeah. And I think uh, we started doing, and I work with the 4-H department, we do a nature night walk and it's parents and kids on a Friday night in the summer. And it goes from like eight to midnight. And so you bring your family and I get a lot of the parents like, this is fun. And their kids might get scared because we're walking through the woods it, yeah, in the yeah. dark, right? And they're like, I'm ready to go. And the parents are like, this is so cool. Right. <laughs> right. That's awesome. So well, that's I'm- cool. I, I'm hoping I can do something like this in the future when I, I'm moving. I'm actually leaving China and moving to Malaysia this summer. But I don't know anything about what's going on there. Maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit later. Yeah, but yeah. I've got a lot of learning to do ahead of me. Seems like you're a, like jump in there. Like you're do, have you ever done Strengths Finder? You seem like a like a lifelong learner. Oh, I'm absolutely, I, no, I, I can't stop. No, it, it's insane. Like I, like the moment I hit the ground, I'm just going to be like crawling around looking for things. I'm with my iNaturalist out, trying to figure out how to find stuff out, trying to connect with like local people. Yeah. I've already been doing that. I've already been like, um, where I'm moving to in Malaysia, I'm moving to Penang Island. I've already found out information about some local um, sea turtle conservation centers, rescue centers. I found out uh, about a, there's an endangered monkey called the Langer monkey uh, that lives on the island and the uh, i know my daughter's class she's going to be in grade five they do a, a a collaborative work with this like langer monkey conservation group and i'm already figuring yeah. what where where do i go That's i'm exciting. already overloading and i'm not even there because <laughs> there's a lot of non-native like flora are there a lot of invasive insects there you know that's an interesting thing i'm not it, it's really hard for me to find out good information about the insects i'm gonna be honest in japan i found a lot of people with similar passions yeah and um one way i'm connected with you is on twitter and i'm a big like i've I've got a uh, like feet in different communities on twitter i'm big into twitter i love my twitter part of it is i'm i've got a foot in the kind of there is an expat japan naturalist community of all these foreigners who live in japan who 
you know, are not scientists are all like armchair scientists like me. And they are into birds. They're into bugs. They're into this and that. And we all have a lot of great conversations and share information and photos and talk about a lot of different things and try to identify birds and identify this and that. I don't have that here because it just doesn't see, I've tried to build it, but it, it's hard. So, but what I do know, there are definitely uh, invasive critters around. A, a, one that's a big issue here is the invasive African snail, these giant African snails that are all over the place. And they're really gross. They're huge. They're massive. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, they're the, they're the size, they're the, some of them look like they're the size of a pop can, you know, and um, and they're they're they carry a nasty bacteria that can cause some yeah. pretty funky sicknesses if if kids touch them. And I know they do a lot of damage to crops and like even just like the local species of mm-hmm. like of of the native species of snails and things and kind of outcompete them and stuff like that. And that, another thing that a problem here with insects is that they spray pesticides, insecticides very liberally everywhere you go they spray our whole campus down a couple of times a week because you know they would say using? well we got to kill pardon do you know what they're using i don't know what they're using but it's they never it's tell not... anyone they just spray down yeah they just oh yeah yeah and they'll just and it's there's a thing i've i've we've had this conversation with administrators before and administrators at my school they they don't want it to happen but we don't own the property so they're like the landlord does this mm. but even in public parks they spray and it smells like gasoline horrible smell like it's really strong really powerful and they they always say it's for the mosquitoes but then what happens is you can't find anything else around either because it obviously doesn't discriminate the use of insecticides kind of just all over the place is 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 quite disturbing even sometimes we'll have people come around and start spraying it we've got kids running around playing we have to yell at them like stop like you can't do this there's children and they'll like argue but it's a schedule it says we spray here now we're like no yeah that basically goes against everything i teach that's you know, because I'm all that's, about that's, integrated pest management and I'm and not sure. Where kind of, that's where you kind of have to you bang your head against a wall yeah. and you're like, oh, wow, mm. those are some pretty big battles. Yeah, um, that's one like, that you are not able to win. Probably, I, I've, I've tried to take them on in a small in my small little way as a current kindergarten teacher. <laughs> I don't I just don't have the clout. <laughs> Who is that? Why is he trying to stop us? He's the kindergarten. Oh, teacher. we have no idea what he's saying. We don't understand <laughs> him. Why is he jumping? He looks very angry. That's kind of funny. Oh, so are all the students that you teach, are you teaching them in English then all the lessons? Yeah, yeah. So essentially kind of the role of an international school, like where I'm at, the school I'm at right now is um, it's in Shenzhen. And during the 1980s, the early 1980s, there were some really huge oil deposits or gas deposits that were found off the coast. Um, in the ocean. <clears throat> so some very big oil companies came, like I think, um, I could be wrong here, I think Exxon, maybe British Petroleum. And they basically brought over a whole bunch of their engineers in order to, you know, do the exploration and all of that stuff. Well, it was going to take a few years. So they need them, they want to bring their families over. They give them a nice big financial package to do so. And then they built like kind of a foreign enclave or community for them here. And obviously these are all like American kids or British kids. They can't integrate them into a local school. They don't speak the language. So the oil company built a private school for them. So they have a school here, teaches American curriculum for American kids. They need to bring in, they can't have local educators. Mm -hmm. They bring in foreign experts. So essentially that's kind of the model of international schools. So yeah, you are going to be that foreign teacher teaching, teaching in English, just as in like your daughter would have had um, her kindergarten teacher in America. I'm doing the same thing. I just happen to be here. I, I happen, I'm a Canadian teaching here in China and my students are American and Canadian and Australian and Korean and, you know, mm-hmm. from different countries. So that's basically what I'm doing. A lot of people kind of get confused. They, they kind of think, oh, you're an English teacher, but it's, it's very different. And my my kids have been growing up in this international system. So my daughter's a fifth grader right now. She's in primary school. My my son's in junior high school now. So yeah, so that's that's what I do. And and next year I'm going to be moving to Malaysia, or I should say next school year, and I'm going to be doing the same thing. When does the school year start? Is it the same as here? Uh, August. Yeah. So like kind of like middle middle to mm-hmm. late August. So similar. And like I I'm actually finished. Uh, I've got like two and a half weeks left of the school year for me. Finished a little bit early this year. So and then and then my holiday, and I'll be going back to Japan to hunt for bugs. Um, <laughs> nice. Which I'm I'm very excited about, mm-hmm. yeah. Or we've talked about like ha- having unstructured play in nature for kids. How mm-hmm. can they do that if number one, 
we don't, it's not in their backyard. Like I grew up in the forest, I feel like, and you grew up, seems like you just grew up in nature, right? And so if that, if that's not accessible to them, how do we give them unstructured play? Like, I mean, here in Nebraska, I would still have to take my daughter to like a state park and, and guide her around, make sure she doesn't get lost or fall off the rock. But I would want her to like do her own thing and give her time to explore things. How can you do that in a country that doesn't value that and doesn't have those things that come naturally? Yeah, you right? got to work hard. You, you have to work it. You got to work hard as a parent. I think that's what it comes down to. Like right. you as a parent have to make the time to take your kid to that place. Right. And unstructured. And, I mean, today everyone hovers, you know, if there, you actually there's just another let problem. them. Yeah. And that's where like a lot of the, the education has to be focused at parents. And that's like, they're the prime target. Again, the kids are the easy ones. I mean, they're, 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 they're curious. Like they're interested in the stuff. They want to be dirty. They want to touch stuff. They want to, they want to find out what goes squish and what goes bang and what drops and plops, right? Like that's mm-hmm. natural. We don't have to teach them that, but we do need to give them the opportunity, right? As an educator, it can be tough depending on what curriculum you're using, I've got lots of qualms about American Common Core. Um, I've worked in Common Core. It can be sometimes pretty rigid. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen other curriculums that sometimes maybe allow for a little more less structure and the more inquiry based. That's one of the nice things about a lot of international schools. They're if, if they're an international baccalaureate school, they can be very inquiry based, which gives kids more of that freedom to make their mm-hmm. choices to be more independent. But as a parent, and I I struggle with this myself with my kids growing up, my kids haven't gotten the exposure I wish they had because, you know, you need to, on a Saturday morning, make sure, you know, you say, okay, I'm not going to do this or this or that, that I want to do maybe, but I got to put them first, which means we're going to hop on the train and we're going to go to this park. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the park and I'm just going to let them run amok or I'll bring them to this little stream or pond and let them just mess around. And interact with them ideally but but that's the thing as a, as an inquiry teacher too I'll say you don't want to interact too much because when mm-hmm. you start to interact too much you're telling them what to do and you're guiding right. them and all of a sudden they're not having that unstructured time and it's becoming structured so i think parents parents really need to be educated and to know the importance of that time there's some great organizations like in the states there's one called the children in nature network which is um i believe a big person who is in charge of that is Richard Louvre. Rich, yeah, Richard Louvre. So he wrote a book called Last Child in the Woods. Um, and he's he's just like this, you know, huge advocate for getting kids outside and and playing in nature and connecting them with nature and and a big advocate of sharing the science behind all that. You know, again, as a teacher, you want to encourage parents to get their kids outside. Um, I do that. I mean, I talk to I talk to parents, even like when you're trying to encourage when you have a child like who's young and you're worried about their gross motor development, that it's like underdeveloped compared to their classmates. I'll say to those parents, I'll call them in for a meeting and say, hey, like, you know, I've got some concerns about your child and his his gross motor development. You know, he's not running like he should. He's doesn't have strong legs. I think these are things I'll say. I, it would be really great to get him out on the weekend and play outdoors. And here in China, they'll say, well, I'll, maybe I'll just put him in a class, like an exercise class. I'm like, no, 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 don't do that, please. You go outside with them because now all of a sudden you're going to have time with your child to build a bond, to communicate with your child, to learn more about your child and to see what your child can do and where they need to, you know, maybe, you know, the glows and grows where they need to grow. And then it's win-win, you know, you're outside, you can be with your child more, they can run around and so, yeah, but it's it's not it's not always an easy sell. <laughs> Do you see the attitude shift in I think it's with girls, but they really generally love bugs when they're little and as they go into middle school, they have that fear. So I don't know if if you get to see that if you're only working with the younger yeah, that, kids. I, I don't know. That's that's an interesting question. I don't really know because I do only work with the young ones. This summer, I'm going to be going back or this June, I'm going to be visiting a school I worked at in Japan for 10 years. And I'm going to get to meet a whole bunch of the kids that I taught in like kindergarten and grade one. Now they're all in high school. And I can't wait to meet oh, them. Oh, that'd be interesting. Talking to the uh, the headmaster. And she's really excited to have me come back and visit. And uh, that'll be really interesting to see. Um, maybe then I'll have maybe I'll have some answers or maybe I won't. The kids have that curiosity when they're young. And it's certainly as they get older, I can at least see, see with like my own daughter who's now 10 years old that 
interests change and she's mm-hmm. maybe more interested in like watching YouTube tutorials on how to make jewelry and how to make this crazy slime. She's really into slime. She's a slime scientist as opposed to going outside and collecting potato bugs now, mm-hmm. which is what she used to like to do. But I think sometimes she gets nostalgic about that. She's like, dad, can you take me out to like look for bugs or this or that but uh but yeah yeah so it, it we'll see what happens but one is just reminding me of something maybe it could be a segue into something i know you wanted to ask me a little bit about later i had a co-worker in beijing a canadian teacher a fellow canadian teacher and she once said to me because i i get a lot of kids they weren't kids i mean i guess teenagers <laughs> from the high school will come to visit me they get knocks on my classroom door from these like students who would tower over me and they're like hi are you mr o'shea i'm like yes and they're like are you the are you the teacher who knows a lot about bugs? I'd be like, I guess so. And they'd be like, oh, our science teacher, like Mr. So-and-so told us to come and talk to you about this or that. And then um, it was just funny. Uh, this coworker said to me one time, of course, Kevin, you're the closest thing we have to a scientist at this school. <laughs> I was just I was like, I thought that was amusing that sometimes like kids from other age groups would come. And, and and ask for my expertise because their teachers would send them to me. So it was kind of a, a neat little reputation. Yeah, so you're known as the, like the resident. The, the bug guy. Yeah. The bug guy. Would you ever um, want to get a degree in entomology? Well, I, you know, you'd ask me that. And it was, it's ironically enough, about a year and a half ago, I was actually via email chatting with a recent guest of yours, Aaron Bauer. You, actually, you're one of the reasons why. I asked her to be on because I had been getting people reaching out to me asking about the program. And I'm like, I'm not associated with it, but I need to find out because I can help promote it. And I'd like to know about it. And she actually made me want to almost get another master's in a degree I already have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ironically enough, I'd say about a year and a half ago to almost Mm -hmm. two years, I reached out to her um, about doing my master's in science in entomology through um, University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, and simply because, I mean, I'm first of all, I'm a Canadian. So the first thing I did was try to find a program in Canada mm-hmm. um, that was offered online. And I just couldn't find anything that fit what I wanted or looked good or I just couldn't mm-hmm. find stuff. I mean, I'd find web pages that had dead links and stuff, you know, on mm-hmm. universities in Canada. <clears throat> so I started searching and it was uh, the University of, of Nebraska that kept popping up, popping up, popping up. So I went on, I read a bunch of stuff and I started emailing back and forth with Aaron about starting the program. And what was really neat was that what she had told me at the time was you don't have to jump right into the program. You can actually just like pick out some courses and like take a course here and take another course. And when you decide you want to actually formally jump into the program, those credits obviously go towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's really cool. But I, I kind of had to look at the balance and think of mm-hmm. what are my professional goals at the moment. And I knew that I was going to be coming up in the job cycle again and looking for a new job outside of China. So what I decided to do instead was to take some courses in environmental education. So that also it's like my passion for the outdoors, nature, but also very directly connected to what I'm doing in schools. I ended up taking a course, uh, a couple of courses from Queen's University in Ontario mm-hmm. in Kingston. Yeah. Um, in environmental education to get like a, I'm I'm in the process of getting my like kind of a specialist certification. Nice. So I, I decided to go that route instead. But a lot of people <laughs> at school I work with, I've been talking about bucket list stuff recently. And a lot of my coworkers have been starting master's programs and different things that they're interested in. I was just like, you know, I've always wanted to be an entomologist, not always wanted to, as an adult, I've wanted to be an entomologist. I want to I want to say I'm a scientist. I'm like, I know this stuff and I want to be into it and and really turn that passion into more of of what I do every day. So um, yeah, so I've revisited that. Ironically enough, I started thinking about that again. And then your episode came out with Aaron Bauer about all about the the program. Um, I listened to the whole thing twice going through. And then I, I reached out to her. I, I went back onto the websites okay. and started reading. And then I reached out to her again. And we've recently been having a conversation and I'm going to, I'm going to sign up for this fall I know they have, I don't know details yet, but she was mentioning that there's going to be a certificate program now too, or 15 credit hour certificate program. So there's more options. There's the master's, the 30 credit hours. There's a new certificate thing coming out. Certificate thing, very, very <laughs> You know, I listened to that episode where she talked about how for people of a full-time job, they recommend one course at a time, one course per semester. And I think at this point in my life, my kids are old enough, you know, where that's uh, they're okay with me being busy and away from them. So it's, it's, it's more manageable. So I, I think, 
I think the deadline I got to get my stuff in is for July 15th for uh, this fall, but I'm planning on uh, at least starting that. That's the goal now. My master's in science and entomology from the uh, University of, of Nebraska. I'm, and I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where, where am I going to use this? How will I use this? As I'm trying to think of, is that going to move me into maybe being at high school science? <clears throat> what other opportunities might come, I wonder? I, it gets me thinking. I've got some friends who are professors at universities in Japan who teach in who teach in English in different departments. And I'm wondering, could this be something in the future? Maybe I head back to Japan with my wife and I get I get work at a university doing something. I don't know. So That's yeah, I'm, I'm, I didn't I'm pretty know excited that. about it. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wanted to mention it to you, but I figured I'd surprise you here during the recording. That's that maybe where I'm going. Yeah. I don't know. What else do you want to tell me? I know that like, you have lots. Like, and I'm like today, like I can see that you're drinking something. I'm like, what are you drinking? Diet Coke with a Chinese uh, Chinese label. You always tell your listeners like what you're drinking. So I've got these like Pokemon <laughs> soda waters. Yeah. So back in the day when I was like recording the this podcast, and I, you know, in Japan, I'd be like years ago, I'd be like, I'm, I've got this kind of beer. I've got this kind of beer. Well, I don't do that now. I just morphed over to soda waters. Yeah. Um, I have like I have a, another podcast. I, I'm a co-host of a very niche one about a game. It's a kind of like geocaching. I do all kinds of weird stuff. Like I just finished um, band practice, so I'm in a band. We finished practicing in the music room for two hours, and then I had to write report cards for my kindergarten <laughs> students. And then and then I come here and I podcast, and then I'm getting interested in bodybuilding and stuff recently. The last year, and then and then and then I I. I'm, I like Pokemon and bugs and I'm just yeah. like, I know, what am I? You're I just know. all around what fun. Tell yeah. me about geocaching then. You know, an interesting thing when it comes to like, for example, you know, scientists are curious people, you know, a lot of educators are curious people um, talking about the bug thing, the outdoor thing, the nature thing. That's actually an interesting thing is one way that, um, you know, there's a, the game geocaching and geocaching is essentially it's a geolocation game where, you know, you you download the geocaching app. You can sign up for a membership for free, but I think eventually you you some you, you have to you have to pay at some point about thirty bucks a year to to kind of get all the the bells and whistles on the app. You know, thousands of players around the world, tens of thousands, and all around America, most countries there are just these hidden containers essentially that might just have like a little log book. You sign your name, or it could be bigger and filled with like toys and cool coins and things. And you search, you, you use your app. And you use clues and you often, you know, they could be urban caches or in the city, but a lot of them are out in the countryside too. They could be hidden in trees, hidden under brush, hidden in holes, tunnels. Who, and you've who got puts them there? Other geocachers. So it's part of the game. You find things, but also people like to hide things. It's it's part of the game, a different element of the game. But what what's great is it, it's a game that gets you outside. You're outside playing. And there's another geolocation game called Munzee, which is another one. It's something I like to play even more. And that's M-U-N-Z, huh? Canadian, E-E, <laughs> Munzee. And that one, you're looking for hidden QR codes. And people like take QR code stickers and they I've stick them I've seen some QR codes in trees. Is that what that is? It could be, or it could be something from like, it could be like the Department of Forestry or something that mm -hmm. maybe you're doing some kind of, I know here, I know here in China, in different public parks, all the trees have QR codes and you can scan them and find out what kind of tree it is. And it tells oh. you information about the tree itself that you're looking at. But you you basically with a, an app, it, it, you go around and, and, and you find virtual things, but you also find physical QR codes and you scan them to get points and stuff. And a big fun part of that is hiding the QR codes too. You get these big batches of stickers and you go and, and hide them. But what, what's cool about those games is it gets you outdoors mm -hmm. and it gets, so like, I'll make a day of something. I'll like, I'll take my son out and he's 13 now or almost 13. But when he was even a little bit younger, we were like, all right, let's go out for the day. And we get on the train, we go to a big park, say, in like Osaka, Japan, and we'd run around and find a geocache or two, catch some bugs. We'd play a little bit of this Munzee, go to McDonald's, have an ice cream, go like run around and do something else outside and then maybe have lunch together and then come home. And he'd be exhausted. And we had this amazing day outdoors where we did nature stuff. We looked mm -hmm. for hidden geocaches in a park. We looked for hidden stickers and planted stickers on signs. And then we had like all these like cool adventures and came back. Um, and then we walked 25,000 steps. 
you know? Nice. Um, and we're exhausted. We've been outdoors. We connected with nature. We played games. We did all these fun things that didn't involve Screens. sitting on your couch. Yeah. yeah. It does involve a screen to an extent. Well, yeah. Do you get points and a score then? Do you see where you are? Or is it just the fun of doing it? With with like the game Munzee, it's all about points and moving up levels. And the mm-hmm. fun of doing it, geocaching is more like a numbers game. It's about how many geocaches can you get? You know, like there are people who, there are players who have tens of thousands. I don't know how that's possible. I got a couple of hundred I found. But again, it's 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 neat. It's all connected. It's like just, so when I do game and people say, do you play games? Like I do, but it's got to be outdoor stuff. Mm. So, because I don't like staying inside much. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not that fun. <laughs> yeah, I don't even, I don't even have a window in here. Like, I mean, I they, they could see me. I'm like my own, like, insect in a cage and i'm in terrarium and so okay. my co-workers can see through the, the glass door but i don't have a window if i uh, did i probably wouldn't even be able to focus because i just want to uh, go outside so yeah i've so. got a, i've got a classroom with giant wall like a wall <laughs> covered in huge windows with amazing sunlight that comes in and uh we have a bird feeder on my window of my classroom that bird sparrows come to and stuff so it's uh it's it's distracting for the kids for sure but in a good way i think so, um, you know, that's uh, kind of in an, I guess I'd say in a nutshell, a little bit about me with the bugs, but um, it's uh, it's been a great tool to connect kids. And I mean, even just today, I brought Gary Houdini, who is my legendary, one of my legend, my legendary stag beetle. His, his name is Gary Houdini. I brought him to school. He's a very large stag beetle. And um, he's a kind of like a outreach bug bring him to school. I've got several stag beetles that I've decided for my kids are like the best, one of the best bugs for getting kids switched on to insects because stag beetles are, they can be huge. So right away, you know, you see a large mm-hmm. bug, right? Fear factor. It's big. Ah! Um, even my coworkers, I, I, they've all come in to, to try to touch them and hold them. I bring them, but, but it's harmless, right? It doesn't bite, doesn't sting. Mine don't fly. They don't, they just kind of, they're there. And they move around a bit. So I bring these bugs in. We start by showing the kids at the beginning of the year. They see it. They're like, oh, eventually a few brave ones will come up and touch it in the box. They kind of touch it. And they realize it's really smooth. And then mm-hmm. I'll put on my hand I, and I let it crawl around my hand, my arms and stuff. And the kids all watch. Then eventually some of them are like the brave ones are like, can you put it on my arm? I'm like, yeah. And I'll put on their arm and it walks around like, oh. And I take photos and videos and I and I share it with their families. and then. Within a week or two, I've got every kid in the class wants that stag beetle crawling up their arm. And then it grows from there. We had um, all the kids. I have my um, beetle excavation team. I've got this crew of boys who love to dig. We have a massive sand pit in our playground. And they've been digging. They're digging holes in the winter and finding all kinds of beetle grubs. These big, and, oh, nice. and we were collecting them. We brought them up to my classroom. And I got a giant bin and I filled it with soil. And we put them all in there and we'd check on them throughout the winter. And now they're all, they're all going through that full stage of metamorphosis. So now they're all a bunch of uh, really beautiful green oriental flower beetles. And oh, we've had, nice. I think we've had about a dozen of them now that have completely metamorphosized. And then we brought them outside and we may or may not have released them onto another teacher's garden. <laughs> may or may not have been doing some damage to that teacher's oh. cucumbers. Oh, <laughs> But yeah, yeah. So now, now it's 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 really cool because my class are just and like everything's like they don't blink an eye. Like I'll have a millipede, like a, a three inch millipede crawling up my arm. I'm like, look, and they're like, eh, and they poke it. Can you put it on my arm, Mister O'Shea? And then like you know, and even like my I have a teaching assistant who um, I've been working with for three years now, and she was terrified of insects in the beginning, and now she'll be like picking them up and looking at them and stuff. So it is really uh, that's it, you know what I've been doing. Um, recently it's it's and when i moved to malaysia i don't know i I'll, I'll figure out what i do from there but i know they've got really big bugs there that are crazy like those malaysian leaf insects and mm-hmm. i see some i see some katydids there that make me shiver like they're just so big but i feel like that would be super rewarding knowing that you've made such a difference and i think just by being there and being this constant like like it's not fearful and i think that's one of the things that make me proud when someone says, you know, if you tell me not to be afraid, I'm not worried. Like if Jody says it, it's, it's going to be okay. So you're this trusted source for bug truth. Yeah. Yeah. And you're yeah, not no, going to let them get hurt. Bug truther. <laughs> yeah, that's what we are. No, but yeah, it, it's totally. And I mean, it's, 
it's cool. Yeah. When you, when you say like, when you see that you've taken the fear out of, out of someone, like they don't have the right. fear anymore and they, and they foster, you fostered a curiosity that wasn't right. there before. That's and really cool. Some of those fears are so irrational, but so real to them that they cannot function at all. Yeah. And so, so in some cases, when you take that away, you've really changed people's lives. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's an amazing thing. I'm making the move to a smaller school next year, and I'm really excited about that. I think I can have a much bigger impact in a smaller school, just because I can reach more students and reach more educators too. Reaching the coworkers is an important part. My next school is hoping to become a green school within the next few years. Uh, one of the one of the first sustainable, like licensed or recognized sustainable schools in the region. You know, they want me to take on some gardening initiatives, and I'm I'm definitely going to be integrating bugs into this, and and uh, we'll see where it goes. But I'm I'm very excited to keep on going, and I'm I think I'm going to have a, a new lease on life and excitement with going to a new place because just sometimes it's 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 great to freshen up and go somewhere new. Yeah, um, I imagine it's been really tough being there and so like just <laughs> kudos to you for you and your family sticking that out that's that's another podcast right there but yeah, yeah it's uh, being in china during zero covid was not a was not a picnic but we we got through it and we're being positive about things it's it's a uh, good times exciting times ahead and then, yeah i'm really excited to hear about like what you're doing and where you're going you have like a lot of good things coming up. So I can't wait to follow you on all your places. Speaking of which, I can grab stuff for the show notes on where people can find you. You're pretty much out there doing a lot of things. You've I'm, always... I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. <laughs> I've got podcasts galore. I guess main ones I'm on Twitter. That's kind of my main thing at Mad for Maple. I'm pretty active on Twitter. I've got a couple of Instagrams. One is kind of just like travel, food kind of thing. I've got another one that's very insect related nature education related it's called shizen wildlife shizen s-h-i-z-e-n wildlife that's the japanese word for nature um nature wildlife um and then uh yeah i've got some podcasts i got one called the nature talks podcast about environmental education which you were a, a guest on and then i've got i guess the the kind of new main one is called the just to asia podcast which is me just profiling the lives of interesting people living in japan and korea and china just neat people doing cool things is there anything that you would want to change about your situation or your job or something like that i'd just love to see more teachers getting connected with the outdoors i think that's a big thing i learned in my education my, my, my environmental education courses is that um i was meeting really amazing teachers all over canada um, from all parts of Canada during those courses. And one thing that they all struggled with was they tended to be one of the only people in their school, in their building, who was passionate about the outdoors or passionate about nature and connecting kids with nature. So I would like to, and this is something that I've done workshops about in the past, but I would love to see more teachers getting outside. I would like to have the opportunity myself personally to even do more workshops with teachers to teach them more hands-on the importance of why we need to get kids outside. There's the whole idea of of outdoor education and just educating outdoors. And educating outdoors is something that we can all do as as, as a teacher. And I guess I'll 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 talk about that. It's just if I can teach, if I can read a story to my class in my classroom, I can do the same thing outside. Mm -hmm. I can go sit on a bench outside or sit in the grass in front of my school and read a story. We if if we can do a writing activity inside where we write in our journals about what we did on the weekend, you know what? We pick up our journals and walk outside and sit down in the grass and write that same thing. And if if we are doing a math activity inside where we're learning about 3D shapes and 2D shapes and sorting them, well, I can pick up all my bins of plastic 3D shapes and I can bring them outside and we can do it outside. I guess opening the eyes of teachers, of showing them that it's, it is not hard to actually get outside with your kids and to, to just spend more time outside because a lot of kids don't have that opportunity. Their parents are too busy. Their parents are working too many jobs or their parents don't have the interest in some cases. Teachers have a lot of power. So as a primary school teacher, um, I hope that moving forward, I can just inspire more teachers to get outside with their kids and then to even in, for, for those teachers to encourage the parents of the of the students to get outside more. That that would be moving forward. And that's not just a China thing. That's uh that's an yeah. everywhere thing, um, yeah. because that's a, a common struggle that in a modern world where everyone wants to look at a device more and more and more, you know, it doesn't matter what culture you're coming from, like mm -hmm. kids in China, kids in Japan, kids in Canada and America, they all want to they, they just want to play games. 
which is cool. You know, that's just a different world. I'm not trying to sound it's like a, I'm, a, balance. I'm, a, I'm a curmudgeon here. I'm not trying to sound like an old man yeah. waving a cane. The kids are going to do that. But what we can do is we can also help get them outside and we can facilitate that. So that would be that would be my 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 wish moving forward. Is there a need for more international teachers? Like we we have a lot of people interested early in their career on things that they may be able to do with entomology degrees or whatnot. What would those steps be if someone was like, hey, I want to be like Kevin? I want to. <laughs> I want to. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'd say the first thing is don't do it. Uh, you don't want to do this. It's uh, it's it's tough. And uh, no, you're, you well, I mean, to do what I do to be an international school teacher, you do need to be a teacher in your home country. You need to have a license. Probably do need to have, I would say you need, do need to have experience teaching in your own country too. International school teaching jobs can be quite competitive. Um, now that pre-COVID, now post-COVID, a lot of people want to travel. A lot of people want to live in different countries and have those experiences. And if you can get a job at a, a nice international school, you know, these schools will take care of you and they 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 will fly you to where you're going to be and maybe give you a housing allowance and pay you a nice salary. And you can now live in this other foreign country and try the food and the culture and have those experiences. So it, it the, the jobs are pretty highly sought after and they are competitive. They're definitely competitive. So I'd say that if if someone is listening, if you do want to do this kind of thing, look at being a teacher where you are and get a few years experience. A lot of schools will say they won't take app. They won't even look at an application on, unless someone has normally at least three years experience. And then as you move up kind of in the world of international schools, some schools, it might be five years, 10 years experience. Do you reach out to the certain schools or do you, is there like an organization that's. Yeah. Yeah. There's different, there's different kind of like job hunting sites that where the schools post on. There's a, there's a big one called scroll or scroll or scroll. I think it's, yeah, scroll or scroll. That's a good one. Um, there's uh, International School Services, ISS.org. There's another um, organization called Search Associates. Often you do have to pay to become a member of these. It's a bit of a wild garden. Um, you might have to pay like $75 a year to have a membership on the site. And then you post your resume, you post all of your, your references and stuff, and then you get to see the job openings. Uh, the hiring season tends to be uh, starting in early fall, and that would be for the following school year. And then you, you know, you go through the rigorous process of applying to schools, hoping they get back to you, and then and getting interviews and going through that whole process. It's pretty exciting. It, it's definitely it's it's neat. I would suggest it for anyone who wants to be a teacher and wants to travel. If you have that background in science, of course, there are lots of positions in high school sciences and things like that. You know, that's one thing that I'm not qualified to do right now because I. I don't have the teaching qualification or the degree to do that, but maybe in the future, if I do mm -hmm. get a master's in science, you know, I definitely could qualify to move up and, and be a, a high school teacher. Might be, you know, my passions with the little kids, but it would be fun mm -hmm. to do something new as well. Again, it's a competitive thing, but it, it's it's a lot of fun. You know, I, I've taught in, I taught in South Korea, I taught in Japan, taught in China, and now I'm moving on to Malaysia. I, I wouldn't be able to do this with, you know, I don't know how, what other skill set I would need to be able to kind of live this lifestyle. And it's a lifestyle that I know, like my wife really enjoys, you know, doing this um, as well. And uh, my kids have had some pretty neat experiences and they're, they're really neat. They're third culture kids they're referred to as, I mean, they, you know, they've got a, a Canadian parent and a Japanese parent and they're being raised in China right now. Um, so they've got some really neat kind of global perspectives, um, which is really cool about mm -hmm. raising children in this environment too. You know, they, they've got some pretty big views on life, some pretty big dreams, but that's because they've had um, exposure to such neat stuff and cultures and languages. Um, you know, like my daughter speaks three languages. She speaks English, Japanese, and Chinese. She speaks Mandarin. That's insane. Yeah. Like I can, I can barely speak English. <laughs> um, that's what I always say to, I always <laughs> say to my kids, like, you're so lucky. You're multilingual. I wake up in the morning. I'm not sure how to say my own name. Um, <laughs> I, I would definitely recommend it if someone someone wants to look into international teaching. It's it's a it's a cool thing and it can afford some neat opportunities. I so appreciate your time for being here and taking the time out of your evening. I'm looking forward to to following you to continue to see where you're going and what you're doing and the the fun adventures you will have in Malaysia. Thank you so much for advocating for those insects and teaching the the words of the bugs. So thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for having me on. 
I want to thank Kevin again for being with us today and spending his evening, my morning with us. And I also want to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in and listening to our episodes. If you don't subscribe already, please subscribe to our show. Give us a rating if you can in a positive way. And if you don't like our show, maybe you can pass that along to someone who is a fan of bugs or interested in learning about entomologically themed things. You can find our show notes at arthro-pod at blogspot.com. And you can find our show on Twitter at arthro underscore pod show. You can find me, Jody Green, on Twitter at Jody Bugs Me UNL. We will catch you on the other side for another episode of Arthropod. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time, same bug time, same bug channel, as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I forgot to put the top on. Yeah. The kids are like, dad, dad, there's a rhino beetle in the shower. I'm like, oh, yeah. Look at that. There he is.